you will turn me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned up outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might be sanctified the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And then this morning we'll look at verse 17. Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as for those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Well, as we look at this section here, look at verse 17, a lot packed in this verse. Um, it, It should be clear, though, when we come to verse 17 from the context... Uh, the author is talking about Christian leaders. He's not talking about civil leaders here. Civil leaders are dealt in other places of the Bible. Uh, but here he is, when he says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Why? For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. So this is talking about church leaders, godly leaders. For example, when you look at verse 7, we've already covered verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, consider the outcome of their conduct. In verse 7, if you recall, he's saying, look back to those faithful ministers and the example they gave to you. Even though you're being persecuted, look to their example and follow their example. They'll teach you through their example uh, how to uh, withstand the the, the fires and the pressure of, of persecution. In verse 17, he's saying, now presently, not only look back to those and remember those, but he's saying, those who rule over you now, be submissive to them. And so based on this text and others, subordination, in some sense, is expected here. So that's the real question. As you can imagine, uh, and you hear this all the time with disgruntled Christians all over the place, uh, that church, that pastor, that elder, uh, overreached their bounds. That's one extreme where there are really elders and shepherds who do that. But then there's congregations who force their pastors to overstep their bounds by putting onto them things that God never intended them to do. And so I want to make sure before we actually tackle this verse, we're going to spend a couple weeks looking at what does the Bible say about elders. Just like the government has limitations on their powers, just like you as a father have limitations on your powers, 
A pastor has limitations on his powers, but nevertheless, there's real authority in each one of those realms. There is real authority at the civil realm. There's real authority for you fathers as the head of your household. And then there's real authority as elders or leaders within the church. And so just remember, we looked at verses 15 and 16 last time, and there you saw the obligation to worship within the body. But when you come to verse 17, the author's giving you your ecclesiastical obligation to render unto those officers in the church the respect that the response, the respect towards the responsibility that Christ has given to those leaders, those uh, responsibilities delegated to them by Christ. Author Pink reminds us this is a gospel institu institution which can only be disregarded to the manifest dishonor to the Lord and to our own great loss. Because remember, there's a benefit to the submission and we'll deal with that, whatever that level of submission is, there's a benefit to that submission. He says, let them do so with joy and not with grief, because that would be unprofitable for you. And so we need to understand, every orderly society has rulers. In all ages, God has appointed officers to rule over his people in the civil realm, the family, and within the church. For example, in the Old Testament, God appointed Moses, he appointed Joshua, the judges, the kings over Israel. But God also appointed the Levites to oversee the ceremonial aspects of worship. God furthermore appointed in the Old Testament fathers as heads over the family. And so under the new covenant, the same is true. Christ has still established leaders in all of those areas. And so the thing we need to remember is there are no unnecessary offices within Christ's church. Everything is there set by Christ for our benefit, our mutual benefit. So the leaders that Christ raises up are to be subordinate to him and the institutions that he ordained. And so this is important to understand that just like a father and just like the civil rulers, the leaders within the church have limits to those authority. You need to know what they are so that your pastor or your elder doesn't cross it, and you need to know what they are so that you don't put something on him that he was never intended to do. Okay? All right. Now before we dig into Hebrews 13, 17... I think we need to talk about the necessity of elders, the qualifications of elders, and what are their responsibilities. Because I just don't want to assume you know. And so we want to look and see what the Bible has to say about all of this. So it'll take us a little time, but, but it'll be good for us. And so when we get through with all these studies, you should be able to answer, are elders even necessary? Right? What are their responsibilities? And then what are the qualifications of an elder? So as we go through this teaching about elders... Uh, let me just say up front, we are caught up in what, uh, I think it was Bonson who said this, but um, he, he called it what, what he referred to the tyranny of the relevant. Our culture is, is you know, just under the tyranny of the relevant, and that has come into the church. Because many in our culture think that if you're going to do something, do a program, do, a, do anything, it's got to be relevant. By relevant, culture doesn't mean what God thinks is relevant, but by relevant, our culture wants something that's entertaining, flashy, meets my fleshly desires, whatever that might be. And so, unfortunately, many within the church today would find a study or consider the study of the necessity of elders and the qualification of elders as just irrelevant. But I, I would argue this is one of the most relevant things that uh, you could be doing, I could be doing. Uh, especially, even if you don't want to be an elder, even if you're not thinking of going into the ministry, it is so important for you to understand what God's word says about the responsibility of elders, 
Uh, once you understand the responsibility of elders, you're going to begin to understand it better how to pray for them. Not just me, but all those faithful ministers you guys know that uh, are doing what God's Word says. Uh, it's going to help you to know how to pray for them a little bit better. And the thing I want you to understand, God determines what's relevant. I mean, think about this. If I designed a bicycle, don't you think as the designer of the bicycle, you know, how it should be used, how it should be put together, what I have to say about all that would be relevant? Well, how much more the designer of the universe? Don't you think the one who established the church knows better about what's relevant with respect to the church than you or me would know? And so he has spent a lot of time preserving in the Word of God qualifications, necessity, responsibility for elders. And so for us to say, well, this is not even relevant to us, is to really look at the, the designer and say, I know better than you. And it's a very arrogant attitude. And so what we want to make sure is we understand what the designer's intent was for elders. So first, let's start with the issue, the necessity of elders. As we cover this, I want you to think, God call, think about this for just a moment. God calls other human beings to minister to the people of God. Now, you see, if God wanted to, I'm sure he could have called his angels to minister over you, but he didn't do that, did he? He called other redeemed human beings to minister. God does not raise up angels to govern his church, but he, he raises up fallen redeemed men. I want you to think, that's very humbling when you think about it. I mean, you know, whenever I work with someone who says they're interested in being an elder, you know, one of the first questions is, why are we even here? Why are we doing this, right? Because there ought to be a sense of, I'm not worthy. I mean, look at what he says here. Let them do so with joy, not with grief. Why? They watch out for your souls. Do you understand the weight and the magnitude of that statement? The elders give an account for those who sit under them. It's not a light thing that men who have been called into the ministry do. This is not just some, you know, oh, well, isn't this neat? We've got these programs here. It doesn't have anything to do with that. They give an account for your souls. So it should be humbling to anybody who undertakes this call. Now, the only reason why anybody would undertake this call is because God is gracious and he calls them to it and he assures them that he will equip them to do the work that he's called them to do. But God takes humble men, earthen vessels, men of clay feet, and he will make them fit for service in his kingdom. Turn over to Ephesians 4. Let's look at the necessity of elders. Ephesians 4, look at verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? Why does God, why does Christ do this? Verse 12. For or because the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. 
And so this text right here tells me that God has ordained the means by which we will discipline, build up, make fit the body of Christ. Right? He gave these offices in verse 11 for a purpose, for the equipping of the saints. Paul teaches us that these are gifts given to the church by Christ. Christ has gifted all of his people by his grace that he's given to them to give us the ability. And these gifts have been given to us to be used within the assembly, within the body. And it's interesting that uh, Paul refers to all of God's people as ministers. You see, uh, we've got this real weird view as though, well, the paid professional, the guy who does it full time, he's the real minister. But that doesn't say that here, does it? I mean, look, look at this again in verse 12. For the equipment of the saint for the work of the ministry. Who is to be equipped for the work of the ministry? Every one of you here. Every one of you. Everyone who is a saint of God is to be equipped for the ministry. And every one of you have a ministry. I mean, as parents, you have a ministry. You have a mission field, don't you? It's sitting right by you right now. Right? You have a ministry. And one of the things that the church does or should be doing is equipping you for that ministry. But just consider for a moment, what do most churches do? They don't equip the parents. They don't equip the saints for that ministry. And they encourage you to just pull them away so that someone else will do your job for you. But that's not our purpose here. The purpose of the elder is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry that he has given to you. Well, this is one of the, the benefits. Think about this. Um, the pastor, the elder, one of the things you need to be asking yourself is if the pastor or elder refuses to do his duty, if the pastor or elder refuses to do this role, then, then you've got to raise the red flag and say, well, I mean, you're not doing this. I don't feel like I'm being equipped in this area of ministry that God has given to me. And so just remember this, the necessity of elders. What is their responsibility? This, this is one place you could come to find that answer. And the takeaway here is this. In order to have a healthy body, a healthy church, there should be elders, pastors who are about the business of building up. But there also has to be a body that desires to be built up. Right? And so here's the thing. Are we coming to a unity of the faith? Are we coming to the knowledge of the Son and to the perfect man? Well, we should be since that's what a group of Christians should be doing together. Elders should be helping and raising up the church in this area. Now, this raises a fundamental question. How can Ephesians 4 be accomplished if the elders are not knowledgeable in the Scriptures? I mean, if an elder doesn't have a knowledge of the Son of God, how, how could he, he even accomplish any of this? And so we want to be careful. We want to be careful. There's a lot of men out there, a lot of young men, who have a zeal but no knowledge. And that can be dangerous. There's a lot of young men that I have come across in my ministry that had a zeal and they thought they wanted this role, but then they didn't want to be trained. That's a red flag. A person who doesn't want to be trained, a lot of times I'll give you an example of past churches we've been to. There'll be a young man there that came from a, an Armenian church and because he knew the doctrines of grace and have a Calvinistic view of soteriology, yeah, he might have known a little bit more than his pastor there or the other people. They, they started looking up to him because, man, you just seem to know so much. But, man, that's just a small part of it. Uh, being a minister of the gospel uh, is a person who needs to know more than Calvinistic soteriology, right? There's a lot there. And so these young men will come and then they realize living dealing, ministering with sheep 
is not always glamorous. Right? The picture that God gives to us of an elder is that of a shepherd who is with his sheep. And sometimes the sheep are nice and they're cuddly and they're just a joy to be with. But then you've seen some videos where there are some sheep that are, are, are challenging. And it's at that point you realize I need to know a little bit more than Calvinistic doctrine to deal with these particular sheep. But that's the analogy. That's the picture that we've been given. And we want to make sure someone who's not willing to be trained but has a zeal could be a real liability within a body who is not driving to this end. Okay. So, if you desire to be an elder, 1 Timothy 3 says that's a noble calling. It's a high honor. But you, you, you need to be willing to be uh, trained. Well, here's, here's another question. What happens when Ephesians 4 is applied? Well, we see here when this is applied that we should no longer, verse 14, be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of the deceitful plotting. So what happens when Ephesians 4 is being properly applied? We're just not like children being whipsawed with the newest fads and doctrines coming around. But do you see what's going on in the church today? See, the church today lacks power because it lacks focus. And here's the thing. They are filled with infantile believers that follow the latest fads rather than coming to a unity of the faith. And you know people like this. So how can we grow in the fullness of the stature of the Lord if... Uh, we're going to try to bring new doctrines into this door every time some new fad pastor gets on TikTok or YouTube or whatever and tries to bring some new revelation to the table. What we need to have is a firm foundation built upon the prophets and the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is the chief cornerstone and we build on that foundation which is the rock word of Jesus Christ. And so now that you kind of have an understanding why we need elders and why we need these different offices here there's a purpose there's a role and as you can imagine when there's a church where the elders the pastors the leadership is doing and accomplishing this you can understand satan is not going to like that and so i want to lay a few things out for you about how you can pray not just for your elder here but all those men that have benefited you blessed you you know they're out there today we lift many of these men up in our prayer time week after week but let's get a little bit more specific. Number one, discouragement. One of the greatest things that Satan can try to do uh, with, with biblical elders is try to discourage them. And that discouragement can come in a lot of ways. could be just, you know what, you, you've had a long day. You've worked a, lot of time, a long time and you need to continue your studies. Uh, Satan's going to discourage you to, to neglect that time and study, of that time of study. Uh, and, and what happens, here's the thing. Here's what happens if you have a weak constitution. Um, you're going to find every opportunity to neglect your responsibility. And so one of the ways you could pray is uh, uh, that there would be the strength, there would be the energy, the zeal to make sure that uh, we're not coming in here winging it, making it up, right? So we want to pray uh, for elders that the Satan would not discourage them. I mean, that's just one area. He's going to discourage them. Uh, there's a lot of avenues that can come into a pastor through discouragement, criticism, all of those types of things, all the things that you wouldn't want happen to you if you were in the spotlight, or not the spotlight, but you know, the, you know, you're kind of the focal point. So pray. Uh, and one of the greatest ways is just to continue to encourage them. You know, periodically I'll drop a note by one of the, the mentors or pastors uh, that had been so beneficial and useful to me 20 years ago. 
and I'll send them a note or just call them and check in on them and see how they're doing. They're like, you know, you don't know how timely this was. You know, because there's seasons where um, I remember in certain churches where we were, when we were at them, uh, there were seasons guys my age at that time um, would, would be hungry and the pastor is excited to find hungry young men who want to know the Word of God and be challenged with the Word of God and grow in the Word of God. And then there's maybe seasons where they don't have it. And so it's easy to get discouraged. And so they're like, I'm so glad you called because I needed that reminder that, that, that God is still using a lot of the work. My work was never in vain. Uh, here's another thing that Satan will come against uh, that you need to pray for is that of compromised. Um, Satan will always be tempting the ministers, the elders, to compromise. And one of the areas I see many men struggle with this is just, you know, we, could, we could do whole sermons on this, but just you know, speaking the truth in love, right? Um, a lot of times you'll see people making a dichotomy between the two. You'll find yourself in a position uh, to, find, to speak the truth, and your mind starts to wonder, well, should I have said that? Or did I not say it in a loving way? You know, he'll do whatever he can to get you off track. But... He will want you to compromise. Or um, one of the greatest areas of, of temptation comes from when you're trying to work with somebody that's in, in you know, pretty open, blatant you know, sin or neglect in their, in their lives, and you, you go and you, you try to talk to them, and then they don't want to receive it. And so one of the areas Satan will use is their reaction to cause you to go back and, and question yourself and compromise in that area. Well, maybe I should have just left them alone. No, that's not, you know, when a sheep is in trouble, the shepherd's neglectful if he doesn't go after that sheep. All right, another area is pride. I think one of the schemes that Satan utilizes is planting pride within the heart of the, 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 the elder or the pastor. Um, just understand this. Um, no, nobody's beyond this sin. And pride is a killer. Because pride is a place that can take pride is, is a route that can take you in a lot of places you don't want to go. So as you think about your elders and your pastors, pray that Satan's not discouraging. Pray that uh, and not just discouraging them, but their family. A lot of times, if Satan can't get to me to discourage me, he'll come through another route. He'll go to one of my kids. He'll go to one of my. He'll go to my wife. You know, he'll bring some. He'll use something, someone to try to discourage and distract. Pray that that doesn't happen. Uh, and then temptation. Um, Satan will always be tempting you to sin, right? That's going to be there. But uh, sometimes uh, it's not just some open, blatant sin that he's tempting you to do. Because if that tact doesn't work, what he'll do is he'll just tempt you to be negligent in your responsibilities. Or he'll tempt you to try to ignore sin. And so just keep these things and pray. So pray that God would protect your elder, pray that God would protect um, other elders that you know uh, from these schemes of Satan. Why? Because we need to be about the business of what God has called us to be. And so as elders, um, we need to understand what Ephesians 4 is talking about. We need to understand that Jesus wants this body to be healthy, be fitly joined together, to be unified. Um, and so the body needs to be coordinated. Uh, in other words, the body should not be dysfunctional where everybody's just doing their own thing. And so that's been lost in the church. One of the greatest things that was brought up yesterday, too, when we come together, it's a reunion of the people of God. It's a reunion every Sunday. We get a reunion of the family of God, right? Uh, reunions and families don't happen as much as they used to. But one thing that uh, was brought out yesterday at the funeral was that Brother Jim, when he couldn't come to church, 
it really was discouraging to him because he loved the reunion of the family of God that he had come to love so much. Well, that's why we need elders. Ephesians 4 is telling us that these offices are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Well, with that, Hebrews 13 says, you know, submit to the rulers. Now, in order to do that, that implies that there are qualified elders to submit to. So I want to now turn our attention to the qualifications of elders. You can find the, the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. So let's go over to Titus. We'll, we'll use Titus 1 um, as kind of a, a pivot place to, to work from. But let's just look at it. Let's read it. And then I want to work through these. And this will take us a little bit of time. Uh, so you know, we won't finish everything this morning. But in, in Titus 1, in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, uh, that you should set things in order, the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded. Now notice this. Here's the qualifications. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. All right. So God gives us this list of qualifications that any elder must meet. And this is important because uh, when you look at this list of qualifications, most church uh, search committees for a pastor don't do this, and number two, couldn't do this. If you read our church constitution, um, for someone to be an elder here, they need to be with the congregation at least for a year. I realize it's arbitrary. Why not 10 months? Why not 13 months? We just put a time period that seemed reasonable. Because you're not going to know. All of this deals with character except for one. One is a skill. They must be able to teach. Everything else is character-based. You won't know the character of a kid that went to a seminary five states away and do a couple of interviews and listen to him preach one time and say, oh, well, there's our candidate. To understand this, you've got to spend time with these individuals. Okay? So that's why our current constitution is written the way it is. Um, there, when we're looking for God to raise up elders, we're, we're not doing a search committee and spend three weeks looking for them and then say, well, come on in. That's how you let the wolves in. What you're looking for is that God is raising them up internally and you're watching, you're spending time with them. You're l learning whether or not they fit this criteria. All right. So since Paul says more about character than he does their doctrine, sometimes there's a false dichotomy that says, well, that's what must rule and not the doctrine part. But that's not true either. They both matter. They most, both need to be there. And we need to understand that a holy life demands that we know God. Um, so with that, let's look at the qualifications. There's typically two categories given for qualifications. Some may argue there's three. Some would say there needs to be character, there needs to be how they deal with their family, and then deals with the doctrinal qualifications. I'll let you figure out the how many categories you're going to put this in, but nevertheless, we're going to go through each one of them, and they all need to be dealt with. So let's deal with the first one. He says, first, they need to be blameless. And so when we talk about blameless, 
uh, it, it, this refers to the fact that the man must not be a notorious sinner whose life is characterized by scandal, uh, unrighteous living, neglectful in his responsibility. Uh, the Greek word actually means free from reproach. Or th- you could think of it this way, not accused of doing anything wrong. In other words, this is a person that no charge of immorality could be brought. And so if any charge could be brought against an individual, then you just need to have some caution and do further investigation of the individual. The elder must have a character for truth, for honesty, general uprightness, not hiding things, doing things under the table. Uh, So when I think of blameless, I think blameless kind of sets the stage for everything else that follows. In other words, um, if any of these areas you say, hang on, that's that I got an area of concern for this individual, then you're not blameless. Does that make sense? And so you want to do further work. So if a man has been called into question in any areas of family life, moral character, or their ability to teach, then just slow down, do further investigation. Doesn't mean the person's disqualified forever. It just means, hey, maybe they're... And, and this is what we did uh, as a young man when I was sitting uh, over at Dominion. Uh, just spent time with Mark and things that he saw that were concerns. He would he would spend time. Let's talk about this. Let's deal with this. Let's see how we, uh, how we could react to this situation better. Uh, one of the great places to figure out where your character is is to sit through a church discipline case. And when he would bring me in to these church discipline cases, you know, he was looking, how are you going to react? How are you going to respond in these different tense situations alright but we come to this uh, Green in his commentary says this a bishop must be without reproach living in such a way that no one can point a finger of accusation at him or rebuke him for living a life unbecoming a leader in spiritual life of the community and uh, you know um, why should an elder have a life that's above reproach well you know Frank Barker said it this way think of the damage done when a church leader lives in an immoral or dishonest way much damage is done now when we look at this word blameless, some of your mind may go to perfectionism. But that's not what this word is, is, is referring to. It's not referring that a man is sinless. It just says you're above reproach. You don't have these, uh, there's, no, there's no basis for someone to accuse you of open, blatant, neglectful sin. And so this is going to become important in a moment when we deal with hospitality. How would you know if you don't spend time with them? And so this is a real problem. This is why so many people are caught off guard with pastors who fall and fall hard. I had no idea. Well, why didn't you have an idea? Well, now that you say it, I only saw him for an hour at church, and that was really it. And I didn't even really get to spend time with him there. So this is why all these things are so important. Now let me just say this. When we come to this blameless, you know, if, you're, if your idea is that word must mean perfectionism, but it doesn't, when we talk about somebody blameless, let me, let me give you a couple of names to think about. When you hear the name John MacArthur, what do you think? Scandal? Sins? I mean, the man's been doing ministry for 50 years. He's blameless. It doesn't mean I think that John MacArthur's never sinned. It just means that his ministry is not characterized by scandal. Sinful, lascivious-type lifestyles. Now, contrast that with some other names. Jimmy Swagger. Benny Hinn, Joe Osteen. Now your mind's like, okay, I get what you're saying. There's something not right there. They're not qualified. They're not blameless in the sense of that word. Okay? All right. That's the first criteria, blameless. Let's look at the particulars. The first one 
is the husband of one wife. And as you can imagine, um, there's a lot of a lot of discussion about what that phrase actually even means. But in the Greek, it's literally a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Now notice this is first in the particulars. And this should teach you uh, that the issue of marital and sexual faithfulness is an important characteristic in the life of an elder. Now this phrase, one-woman man, certainly would exclude polygamy, divorce, and other perverted views on marriage. But this text implies several things. Uh, the text, first of all, I think we can just get the easy ones out of the way. Number one, it excludes women. Right? This criteria would exclude women from being an elder. The elder must be the husband of one wife. Not the wife of one wife, but the husband of one wife. And so to put a woman in the position of an elder within a church would violate the clear principle that's implied here, but it would certainly be a, a violation of the explicit command over in 1 Timothy 2.12. Uh, this text also excludes sodomites or any other perverted lifestyle that you can come up with. Now, this is a much debated uh, text when you go to the commentators. And so when, when you, let me just kind of give you some things to think about. When you're dealing with a text and it's um, a lot of maybe some ambiguity there or some different positions, uh, one of the things I do is just jot down all the possibilities they could be talking about. And then through the immediate context or, certain, you know, or uh, context of the scriptures, the analogy of faith, scripture interprets scripture, um, you start excluding some of the things and make it a little bit easier, narrow it down to, well, it could be this, but more than likely based on these texts over here, it's not that. So let's take that off the list and let's narrow it down to something that's a little bit more manageable. So number one, it could be that Paul is excluding all those who have never been married. could be he's excluding all single people. Um, but that's not the case. Single people are not excluded from service of God's kingdom. Uh, Christ talks about that in the gospel. Uh, I, I think the Eastern Orthodox Church is the only one that would uh, say that marriage is a requirement for elders. Second option, he could be excluding polygamists. Now, I think that's certainly a violation of scriptural principles, but um, I don't think that's who Paul had necessarily in mind when he wrote it the way he wrote it. According to John Stott, polygamy was forbidden by Roman law, so I'm not sure that was even an issue for them to deal with, but I think we would all agree it'd be pretty easy to disqualify a polygamist if he were to walk up in here. All right. But I don't think that's who he has in mind. The third option is a little bit more interesting. The third option holds that Paul is referring to a widowed or remarried individual. In other words, some would say that there's an Old Testament precedent to establish this view. So let's look at it real quick. Go to Leviticus 21. Leviticus 21, look at verse 13. And at, this is talking about the different regulations for priests, but in verse 13 it says, And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a defiled woman or a harlot. Uh, these he shall not marry, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as a wife. Nor shall he profane his posterity among the people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. So this chapter deals with who can be a priest. Uh, under the old covenant, but the high priest could only marry a virgin Israelite. Otherwise, uh, it tells you that the offspring would be defiled uh, in a ceremonial sense. Um, go to Ezekiel 44. Ezekiel 44. 
Ezekiel 44. In Ezekiel 44, just uh, you can read verse 22. And there again, Ezekiel is going back dealing with some principles around you know that governs the the, the priest. But uh, in, in verse 21, it says, "No, uh, I'm sorry, verse 22. They shall not take as a wife a widow or a divorced woman, but take virgins of the descendants of the house of Israel or widows of priests." And so we see here again. Uh, they could only marry the virgin Israelites. They could not marry these different categories of people. And so what some people will do is, is come to Titus, for example, and argue that, well, Paul's referring to something like this. Some argue that Paul's that, uh, saying that an elder cannot marry a widow. Uh, but John Stott, commenting on, on one of the early church fathers, says this, a number of the early church fathers interpreted Paul's prohibition this way. Tertullian was the most outspoken. He under his wife, if he were to die first, to refrain from marrying and have done with sex forever. Now that was Tertullian's position. Tertullian applied this to, to men as well. According to him, uh, this applied to widow men. So his words were this. This is what Tertullian said. For men who have been married twice are not allowed to preside in the church. And so it appears as Tertullian actually got older, he got became more extreme in his views against remarriage. And so he wrote a, a, a treaty that's called the Exhortation of Chastity and Monogamy. But he argue that marriage is to be contracted only once and those who remarry are setting themselves against God's will by demanding what he has decided to take away and that to have two wives successively is no better than to have wives two wives conclusively well we just recently covered the biblical view of marriage and remarriage I'll, I'll let you go back to look at that but based on the teachings of other scriptures we don't agree with Tertullian on that and so I don't think this is what Paul is referring to either. So this leads us to the fourth position. The fourth position is that what Paul's really doing here is excluding men from the office of elder who have divorced and remarried. And I think that's a real problem in the West today. Divorce and remarriage were a real problem in the Roman Empire and also within Palestine if you look at the teachings of Jesus uh, there in the Gospels. So one who holds this view uh, actually made this comment. It said, It is clear that a man's ability to manage his own marriage and home indicate the ability to oversee a local church. A pastor who has been divorced opens himself up and the church to criticism from outsiders and it is not likely that the people with marital difficulties would consult a man who could not keep his own marriage together. And then he ends with these words, I see no reason why dedicated Christians who have been divorced and remarried cannot serve in other offices in the church, but they are disqualified from being elders or deacons. And so here's the thing. Being the husband of one wife really refers to singularity of a man's faithfulness to the woman that God has given to him. And so this refers to inwardly and outward sexual purity. It's quite possible for a man to be married to only one woman, but yet not be a one-woman man. That is a possibility, right? Because he may have sexual desires for other women, uh, other than his own wife, or he may engage in impure behavior with other women. But the point that Paul is making here is that an elder must have a lifelong reputation for devotion to his spouse and sexual purity. <coughs> an elder must be completely free of fornication, adultery, and divorce. And so when a church brings a morally corrupt man into leadership, um, it's a real contradiction to God's word, but they're also setting themselves up to let immorality pervade within the church itself. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Go back to Proverbs 6. 
Just consider what Proverbs says about this particular sin. Proverbs 6, verse 27. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all of the substance of his house. But whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. You see, unlike a thief, a man who commits adultery has no way to make restitution for that sin. And he can never be free of reproach. doesn't mean he can't be forgiven. It just means he can't be free of reproach. And consequently, he can, he can never be above reproach. So understand this. In our society, uh, where divorce and fornication and adultery is so prevalent, we've actually made these sins of victimhood in the church. When you fornicate, when you commit adultery, you're not a victim. Right? You're a sinner. And we need to remember that. God's word talks about the destructive nature of adultery. And Paul's point is that in order for an elder to be an elder, you have to be faithful to your wife. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 9. Let me just say this. Paul didn't see himself above God's word. He didn't see himself as being above temptation to the point where he could be disqualified. I mean, look what he says here in verse 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 27 says, I discipline my body and bring it to subjection, lest when I preach to others I may I myself should become disqualified. You know, earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul said this, Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Paul understood that if he fell into sexual temptation, he no longer would have a life that was above reproach. And because of that, he would no longer be qualified for leadership. So, what's my position? My position on, on Titus uh, and 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3 says the very same thing. My position is that Paul's referring here to marital infidelity. Paul is teaching here that an elder must be faithful to his one wife. An elder should be the man of unquestioned morality, one who is entirely true, one who is entirely faithful to his one and only wife. You know, sexual impropriety is unacceptable for any Christian, but especially for one who is an elder. Okay? So let's go back to Titus. Titus 1. So we have the qualifications of an elder. Do you understand why our Constitution is written the way it is? Um, someone you don't know could have hit, could hide a lot of stuff from you. Right? But those who live among you, those that you fellowship with, it's going to be a lot more challenging to hide that particular sin from you. Next, he talks about faithful children. And some come to this and reason that this passage is saying that uh, all the children of the elder must be saved. But that's not what the text is saying. It's not what it's referring to based on the context. Notice he qualifies what it means to be faithful. Your children are not accused of riot or unruly behavior. So if the elder has a child, the child should not exhibit this types of behavior. Um, some of your translations say that the child should not be accused of dissipation or insubordination. But the word translated dissipation is a, a sushia. It refers to one who has abandoned himself to reckless behavior. So we would think of debauchery, sin, wickedness, depravity, indulgence. 
And so when Paul says you must have faithful children, the word having is in the habitual present tense. It's a present active participle. So what that really means is children that are habitually not living or, or, or who are habitually living in this state of dissipation. So what if the child of an elder sins once? Does it disqualify the man? No, it's talking about habitual state of rebellion and sin. And it's demonstration that, that the man doesn't have control over his household. Every elder's child has sinned if you didn't know that. The question is, do they live in a state of habitual sin? Okay. So the word translated insubordination is a word that means independent, not subject, rebellious, undisciplined, disobedient. But these are signs that a man's household is not being managed well. If a man cannot manage his house, then he has no business being an elder. I mean, that's the rule. That's the standard that's given to us here. It doesn't mean he's uh, disqualified forever. Let's say there is a man who's a candidate and his household is unruly. Does that mean he can't ever be one? No. What God's telling them is, before you start distracting yourself with other responsibilities, you might want to focus on this one, bring it under control, and now qualify yourself. And that's what we would do as a body. I mean, we, just because somebody might uh, have rebellious children doesn't mean we say, well, you can't ever preach here. Uh, what we'd say is, let's come along beside you. Let's help you out. Let's equip you. And then let's come back and revisit this. Okay? Then he goes on to say, blameless as a steward of God. Notice the elder must, and, and, and the word must is emphatic. He must be blameless as a steward of God. Now this is the same word we saw in verse 6, but here what he's saying is he must be blameless as a steward of God. The word steward has this idea of one in charge of a household or a state. You might think of a manager. But as Christ's under-shepherds, elders are to be faithful to their calling. 1 Corinthians 4.1 says this, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And the stakes are high. We're dealing with the sheep of Christ. No one should ever take the office of elder lightly. As an elder, um, we are seeing here that we are stewards over the master's goods. And this is why you'll hear some people say, if you can be content doing anything else than being a pastor, go do it. Because the calling's high here. Paul is clear in Titus, the elder must be blameless as a steward of God. If the elder is to influence the flock, then he must be uh, blameless in this area. Elders are to provide for um, and dispense to the church the things that are needful for their growth and point them always to Christ. Think about what happens if an elder is neglectful in this area. What, 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 what happens there? Well, it puts souls in danger, doesn't it? Think about a, a shepherd and the picture of a shepherd with a flock of sheep um, that if he's not blameless as a steward over those sheep, he puts the lives of the sheep at danger. But what if the sheep don't want you to be a good steward over them? Well, I'm not answerable to you. I'm answerable to the shepherd who bought you. And there's a lot of sheep out there that don't want it. I get it. But I have to stand before God and give an account, and so I can't be neglectful. If I see that there's issues or that your soul is in danger, that the sheep are in danger, I've got to confront it. I've got to deal with this. Okay. Next, he says, don't be self-willed. The idea of self-will refers to one who pleases himself. 
And it's a strong adjective that denotes an arrogant self-interest that asserts its own will with no regard as to how others might be affected. In the words of one, proud self-interest is in one way or another the root of all sin because it not only disregards the interests and welfare of other people but even more important disregards God's will and replaces his purpose and glory with man. So, if you're an individual who's been on doing things your way you can't submit under any of God's ordained authorities whether it be the civil realm whether it be the, uh, the family whether it be uh, submitting to other elders in other churches uh, then, then you really got no business being an elder. Once again, it's so important if you raise up your elders from inside your flock, then you can see how they respond. Are they submissive in this area? Are they self-willed? Once again, if you bring somebody from some other person's flock, you don't really know how they respond to the other elders. But if they can't submit, then they're going to have a real problem leading and guiding because now all of a sudden they're expecting people to, well, they become hypocrites, right? Because they're going to want you to do what they never did. And the only way you can flesh this out, this self-willed, is spend time with them. Okay? <clears throat> One that is self-willed does not have the bride of Christ in mind when making decisions or ministering to her. He won't feed, he won't guide, he won't rule, won't protect in any way that Christ has prescribed protection. Why? Because he's self-willed. He has a cause, which is his cause, but it's not Christ's cause. And this is a hard one because you know we're prone to be self-willed. I mean, we won't... <laughs> We want our way because we think we're right. But here's the thing. We need to be able to bring our wills under the dominion of Christ. And so it is a criteria for an elder. Next, not quick-tempered. This means that an elder should not be quick-tempered or, or easily provoked to wrath or anger. I mean, just think about the disaster that would happen if the church put a wrathful, short-fused individual in as an elder. As elders, um, you have to learn to deal with sinners, and sinners need to be patiently guided. And so a man who cannot govern his temper has no business governing the flock of Christ. Remember, we read this this morning in James, didn't we? He teaches us that the anger of man never produces the righteousness of God. So an elder has to guard himself against the spirit of hostility and resentment. Um, even when sheep are behaving like goats, you've got to keep it together. Because you can make it much worse if you don't. So this is why it's important to watch how men discipline the sinners within their own home. Pay attention to that. How do they discipline sinners in their own home? Because that's going to be a, a kind of a cue as to how they're going to deal with sinners outside their home. If they deal with them out of frustration, if they deal with them out of outbursts of wrath, they're just not ready to be elders. Okay. Next, not given to wine. The Greek word here means to one who's addicted to wine, drunken, or who tends to be quarrelsome because he habitually drinks too much. And when used as a substantive here, it refers to a drunkard. I don't think this means that, uh, you know, based on other texts of scriptures, it's not saying that uh, alcohol is sinful. What it's saying is that you, you can't be governed by alcohol. You can't be, um, we well, just can't be a drunk, right? I mean, that's what it's basically telling you there. An elder has to guard himself against this. Um, you know, there again, there's no greater reproach to a ministry than for a minister who in the community is known as a drunk or given to, to, to too much wine. This word conveys the idea of one who loves wine and gives himself to it at any opportunity. Uh, this is one who is under the influence and driven by his passion for wine or alcohol. Uh, when they're like that, they're just not going to be able to effectively uh, minister at all. 
And so uh, a man should not be known as a drunk. If he is, he's, he's disqualified. Now the word in the Greek is a compound word comprised of the word para, which means along, and oinos, which means wine. It literally means to continually be alongside or in the presence of wine. In other words, wine is not to be the constant companion of an elder. It's going to lead you to impaired judgment. It's going to lead you to lascivious type lifestyles. So we, they, they need to avoid this. I mean, the Bible's clear on this. The Bible tells judges and priests not to partake in wine while they're fulfilling their duties. Leviticus 10.9, Proverbs 31, 4 through 5. And so here's the thing. Um, any amount of wine drinking that leads to impaired mental state needs to be avoided since the elder at all times needs to be in control of his faculties. I mean, isn't that what is? Isn't that probably the most reasonable interpretation of this? Now, I realize there are some pastors who are out there who says, look, I don't want to give any reason for anyone to ever think that I'm a drunk. I'm just never going to drink. And that's okay. It's when they tell everybody else that alcohol is a sin, that's where we've stepped over. Because at that point, what you're saying is, you're holier than Jesus. We want to avoid that. We don't want to take one text and then use it as a text that would actually put an indictment on our Savior, which is what the teetotaler movement has done. So, once again, you've all been in my house multiple times. You're always welcome to come into my house. And what you'll never find is a drunk fest. Your pastor doesn't get drunk. Okay? So, but this is one of the qualifications. And so if you don't spend time with an individual who's a candidate for an elder, you'll never know if he's a drunk. Next, not a striker. If a man is known to be a fighter, he's disqualified. So this refers to one who settles disputes with his fist. He's a physically violent man. An elder must be a man who pursues peace. And so in, this, in line with this thinking, an elder should not be a man who is bent on revenge or cruelty. Now, there's a lot of videos of me out in the public with some very hostile people who hate me you know what you'll never find a video of your pastor laying his hands on any of them we're not a violent people we're Christians we have a sword it's called the sword of the spirit it's mightier than anything my fist could bring or deliver but an elder should not be known as a striker as a violent man doesn't mean he can't defend himself we're not talking about that we're not pacifists here but he should not be known as one who's just all out in the public brawling, fighting, solving disputes. Can you imagine dealing with a discipline case and the pastor is a brawler? I mean, I can't see that ending good. It may end up on YouTube, but it's not going to be good for the church, is it? All right, so he must not be a striker. Next, not given to filthy lucre. What does that refer to? Well, it refers to greed. I think we can all imagine that this would be a disastrous characteristic of an elder. Uh, think about the temptations of a man who has a greedy heart um, with money involved. So Paul's referring to a person who has no integrity and he seeks wealth and, and he sees the ministry as a way to gain wealth. Now, just turn over to 1 Timothy 5. Let me just say this. I have been in churches before where I've had to sit in meetings where I'm listening to, I assume they're well-meaning Christians, 
but grovel over the salary of the pastor who has been feeding their souls faithfully for years, and they're talking about nickels. But notice what uh, the Bible says here. Let me just say this. Your pastor has no complaints with this congregation. This is not about y'all, but I've seen some really um, sad, pathetic discussions take place in church meetings about taking care of their pastor. Let the elders who rule well, notice in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborers is worthy of his wages. All right. So a man who is expected to be hospitable and have people into his house should not have to live below the poverty level. That's all it's saying. Right? So we want to understand this. There is a principle there. Okay? But Paul is teaching us over in Titus, though, that those who faithfully preach and teach the word, he's teaching us here they should be taken care of. But what Paul over in Titus is warning of is be careful of these people who are in the church who see a way to make profit off of it. I mean, if you think about it, go to first, look at 1 Timothy 6 here. Look at um, in verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words... Even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt mind and destitute of the truth. Now notice this, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now what do you do with such people? Well, you don't make them elders. He says, from such withdraw yourself. And what Paul is warning here, not just here in 1 Timothy, but warning over in Titus as well, there's a problem that there are these types of people, these false teachers who have entered into the church and they're taking advantage of the flock. They were in the church for money, not to serve the Lord or his people. And so we just need to remember that. Uh, once again, you're not going to know if someone is greedy or has a, a greedy heart until you spend time with them and watch their practices. So this is why it's so important to, to get to know them. You know, Peter admonishes, and we'll, we'll deal with 1 Peter 5 too later on in our study, but Peter admonishes pastors, shepherd the flock of God among you. He said, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain. This needs to be the character of the, the elder who leads the flock. He shouldn't be governed and dictated by greed. And it won't take you long to figure that out. Right? Okay. Another thing is, the church needs to be set up such that there's checks and balances with respect to the money and the elders' access to that money. So it needs to be that constant there. One of the things you're doing by setting that structure up is you're preventing him, even if he doesn't struggle with it, preventing him from that temptation to be... Uh, he wants, you want him to be always above the table and you want him to always to be above reproach. You don't want any kind of even a hint of impropriety with respect to the money when the elder is you know when it comes to the elder. Once again, if y'all want to stay and talk and ask questions later about this, press it into more corners. I'm happy to do it. But let, let me move this on to the next one. The next thing he says in Titus is he must be a lover of hospitality. The word trans. Translated hospitable is another one, a compound word comprised of the word of phylos, affection, and xenos, stranger. He must love, have affections for the stranger. The lexicon says hospitable, loving, strangers, a friend of, or kind to. The person who is hospitable gives practical help to anyone who is in need. He freely offers his time and resources and encouragement to meet the needs of others. 
especially those in the body. And so this is vitally important. This would have been so important back in the days that Paul was writing this, right? Um, Christians traveling from one place to the other would often need time to be helped by other believers. But notice here that the elder is not one who just does it from time to time, but this is one who loves. He exhibits hospitality. In 1 Peter 4, 9, Peter exhorts his readers, use hospitality one to another without grudging or without complaining or murmuring. And so anyone who does not love hospitality, the text says you're not qualified to be an elder. So by bringing people into your house, it's just one of the many ways an elder can bless others. Anyone who's content to keep other believers out of their home should be raising red flags, right? The people of God are not to live in isolation and separate from one another, but rather the church is presented as a community. And so where there's no hospitality, there's no community within that body. And I think that describes a lot of churches, doesn't it? And the point here is that um, you don't want to put someone in, in, in a position of authority, but they're disobedient in this area. So, you've got to examine the individual to see if his life is in alignment with the Word of God with respect to this area and, and all the other areas we've covered. But without this characteristic, it's going to be very difficult for you to know how that candidate will lead the flock, right? If you don't spend time with a potential candidate, um, like I said, uh, I've used this before, but um, I'll use it again because I think it's so important. It is very easy for me to... Uh, make my kids behave for the two hours we might come in here on Sunday morning, right? It's quite something different when I'm constantly having you in and out of my house. I mean, you see it. It is what it is, right? You see the issues or see the non-issues, but you need to know. Because one of the greatest safeguards for me is to have you into my house. It's one of the greatest protections I have is to have the congregation, have the flock constantly in, into our house. But... A person who is interested in being an elder, if they don't ever want you in their house, red flags ought to be going up. They're violating this criteria. The elder must be able to spend time with his flock to know his flock. And so in the context of the early church, this characteristic was necessary to show kindness to the church and to be a blessing and to help them. But don't underestimate what Paul's saying here. Hospitality in those days was a picture of one's commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his kingdom, and to his people. And here's the thing. Hospitality is not about having people to come over to entertain you. Hospitality is about you spending time and being a blessing to them. Okay? So if one desires to be an elder but doesn't exhibit this quality, you just need to be aware of them. And, and you just got to ask yourself, is the church, is the pastors and the majority of the churches around here known for hospitality? All right. Shouldn't be, a, you know, the sheep shouldn't be a stranger. Here's another thing. It's not only that the elder needs to be on board, but if his wife and his family are not on board, it's not that he's disqualified forever, but you can see that if an elder wants to have hospitality, but his wife is just, I'm so sick and tired of having these people in my house. i got to clean Because remember, it... They have to clean. They have to be ready. You have to open yourself to criticisms that people who don't have people in your house don't exhibit. I mean, you'll be amazed at some of the people that have come through our house over the past 20-something years and some of the things they've said. They need to be ready. So part of helping an individual, a young man, get ready for the ministry is to help his wife get on board um, because this is a requirement. 
This is not something that's optional. It's not like all, it's not as though you get 90% of these characteristics right, but you can opt out of that one. It's, it's just not the way it works. Okay. Next, you need to be a lover of good. Uh, this carries the idea of having a strong affection for that which is intrinsically good. We should love those things that are honorable and pure. Elders should be friends of the godly and the virtuous. I mean, I think it's implied here, but uh, we should be lovers of souls. If an elder does not love the souls of men, then he's just naturally not going to care for their state or their well-being or be concerned for their good. Another way to look at it, I shouldn't just be a lover of my own cause. I should be a lover of that which is good. All right. This love should motivate us to pray for others within the congregation and be lifting them up. Next, we need to be sober. The Greek word is sophron. Another compound word, sozo, means to save, and friend is the word for mind. But this, this is one who is sober-minded. An elder must be in control of his mind. He needs to be in control of the things he thinks about, the things he says, and the things he does. In other words, he doesn't allow the circumstances in his life to justify foolishness or immorality or distract, distract him from any, you know, off the focus and the purpose of what he's been called to do. An elder knows his priorities and he's devoted to them. Next, he needs to be just. It's the word dikaios. It means right. An elder desires to see those things that are just and right. We're talking about things that are in alignment with God's word. He needs to be holy, the text says. This is one who's just devoted to God. In other words, you've been set aside, you've been consecrated to God in his service. And so, if a person is not devout towards God, then um, all these other things just will not fall into place. But when he is devoted to God, when he's devoted to the holiness of God, sees the beauty of the holiness of God, he's going to be just, he's going to be sober, he's going to be a lover of good things, he'll be hospitable, he'll be honorable to his wife. But then he needs to be temperate. Temperate just means to be self-controlled. In other words, an elder lives an exemplary life on the outside because he's submitted to the Spirit's control inwardly. The self-controlled elder walks with God. He is dependent upon the grace of God to work within his life. Think about it this way. The uncontrolled person, the one who cannot control himself, is going to fall quickly when he is put into the position of authority and power. And so, let me get to a stopping place here. Up until this point, all these qualifications has dealt with his character and his family. And a lot of times these get left out when it comes to the search committees. Why? Well, you pull some kid out of the seminary who's now got uh, eighty dollars to $100,000 worth of debt um, and you try to interview him for a couple of weeks and bring him in and preach a sermon or two, you don't have time for any of this. And so we tend to focus a lot, maybe we tend to focus on the doctrine, but we don't use any discernment to see if a person is selfish um, and then, you know, are greedy or any of these violates any of these other characteristics. And then you put him in a pulpit and then you wonder why he fails. I think it's sinful for what churches do to these men by not taking this criteria and the pro come up with a process that's equitable, that is actually allows you to see if he fits these criteria or not. Uh, you're setting some, a lot of these young men up for failure. And that shouldn't be what we do as a church. And so, I think what Paul, if you wanted to boil, turn to John 13. 
Turn to John 13. I think what Paul's trying to do when he's given us all these criteria, it, if you boil all this down, it, don't you just think it means he needs to be a humble man who is willing to submit himself to God's word. But in John 13, notice this. This is the Lord of glory. In verse 2 it says, The supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose up from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with a towel with which he was girded. And then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. I, mean, I think this text here is very helpful for us to understand something. At first glance, isn't Peter's comments, doesn't it sound so humble? Right? But notice the response of Jesus. You see, true humility is found in allowing Christ to minister to us the way he sees fit to minister to us. And if we don't allow Christ to minister to us in this way, then um, he says, you know what, we're not with him at all. And, and that's not humility. To, to refuse Christ to minister to us as he sees fit to minister us, to us is not humility, it's arrogance, it's pride. But let me just drive the po point home here by reading the rest of the section. Look at verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Oh, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to be washed his feet, but he is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, and therefore he says, You are not all clean. And Christ is saying, There's, there's one here who's spiritually dirty. I know what he's going to do to me. But within this section, Jesus is about to give us the greatest example of service. Look at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you not know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly I say to you, A servant is not greater than his master, nor he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all, all of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when he does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives me, whomever I send, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. An elder must always follow the example of Christ. And learn to serve. Think of the attitude that goes with washing another person's feet. I mean, the first sign of this, this is how Christ, the Lord of glory, on his way to the cross, wanted to serve and minister to his people. And one of them said, you can't do this. You can't minister to me this way. Think of the attitude that goes with that. In order for Ephesians 4 to take place it has to be both sides the offices must be there and they must minister the way Christ has called them to minister and then those who sit on the other side to be prepared for the ministry of God's work must allow Christ to minister to them and here's the thing for an elder to be a godly officer an elder must see himself as inferior to those that he is serving that's humility that's humility
He doesn't set himself as as untouchable, unapproachable. You have no access to me. You can't be seen as that. That does not describe most of the most of the people that you know of are not described that way. And most of the pastors in this area are not set up and structured that way. And so some, one who desires to be an elder, if he does not take on an attitude as a servant, it's going to be very difficult to minister to the flock of God. But Christ in this text sets the example for us to follow. I mean, we all have a tendency to be selfish. And so God leaves us the example of Christ to learn to serve others. Well, these are the personal qualifications for an elder. And you can also find them over in 1 Timothy 3. A lot of times this area has is, is been uh, neglected in the examination of the elders. I think it's easier to deal with someone's doctrine and ask pinpoint question than it is to deal with someone's character, particularly if you don't know them very well. Um, but when one becomes an elder, an elder should expect a meticulous examination, not of just their doctrine, but of their life. And a man who cannot undergo that or refuses to go through that process, he's not worthy to be an elder. He's not, re- he's not that he's not worthy, he's just not ready. And, and the process of examining a man may be the process that God uses to make the man because the last thing you want to do is put an unfaithful person. Well, I realize that they're not hospitable. But once we make them an elder, they'll become hospitable. That's not the process. No. You don't put unfaithful people in the ministry in the hopes they become faithful. You put faithful people in the ministry so that they don't cause havoc and, and just wreak havoc within a church. All right. So let's go back to Hebrews 13 real quick and we'll end. We're going to come and deal with holding fast the faithful word. That was a lot, so we'll we'll, we'll pick up on that more willing next week. But are you beginning to see a little bit, we're not done with this, a little bit of the purpose of verse 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Father, thank you for this word and this time that we spent understanding how you want your church to be run. And Lord, these criteria that are set here, so many have said if we held that criteria, no one would be worthy of the calling. But Lord, your spirit dwells within your ministers. There's no reason that the power that that resides within him, that uh, the one who rose Christ from the dead cannot make the kind of person that you're asking them to be. Father, we pray that we'd have a proper understanding of what your word says within this area. Pray that you would help us to see Ephesians 4 take place within our congregation. That the saints would be equipped for the ministry, all the ministry areas that that every family has here. And so, Father, I pray that you would equip them, use them for the advancement of your kingdom, to see your glory shine within their lives as they submit themselves in obedience to you. Lord, may we take seriously these teachings. And Father, I pray for your, your grace to help me walk in a way that is worthy that would not cause anyone to stumble. I pray for my family. I pray uh, for them and lift them up to you as the wicked one who tries to bring so much destruction in so many different ways. We pray, Lord, that they would stay focused on you as you deliver us, as you continue to sustain us, as you, pre- you prepare to present us faultless before your glory. May we take joy and comfort in that knowledge. And so, Lord, we pray that as we uh, come to the end of this service, we will continue to meditate upon your word and give ourselves to it, that we may give ourselves unconditionally committed 
to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.